Well, good morning and welcome to Livingstone's Church this morning. We're glad you joined us. I know some are joining by live stream here in the second service as well, so it's great to have you with us. How many are excited? Baptism service. You know, in the first service, we had four people baptized. This service, four people baptized. And tonight, we have one more. So nine people today are following Jesus in waters of baptism. Right? That is so exciting. And two of them have been Christians now for five weeks. (laughs) Isn't that beautiful? So God is doing something in the hearts of people. So I'm going to have a stand as we go to the Lord in prayer And I'm just going to pray today that God's Spirit's just going to keep being poured out to you as you're here and live, and then also you that are watching, that God will touch your hearts. Open your heart today. We're going to explain a little bit about what in the world just went on, and I'll try to give a little meaning to the baptism service. So Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity of gathering together and celebrating who you are how great you are, how you have brought about a transformation in our lives. There's a power that works in creating, Lord, uh, healing and broken places of our soul and leading us forward to becoming more and more in your likeness. And we thank you for that. I pray today that you'd open our hearts, that we'd hear your voice speaking into our lives in a very personal way, but also corporately. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated. How many have ever felt like you, could, you would love to do life over again? If you had another opportunity, you know, uh, I entitled this sermon, A New Beginning. Patty said to me, you got to change it when you put it on the blog. It's not going to be the great reset. <laughs> because I believe that there is a greater reset than what the society is talking about today. And we're going to look at it. And it's God's reset, which is far more exciting And it affects us all in a very powerful and individual way. You know, if you could hit, you know, I call it the reset button or, you know, when you go to your computer, it says refresh, and then you get a, you know, get another opportunity to open up the page. I believe God wants to give you another opportunity to open up your lives and to allow God to do such an amazing work inside of it. But, you know, unfortunately, we can't go back and undo a bunch of things, right? The past is the past. That's water under the bridge, sort of, as they would say. But how many would like to have a greater future, a more promising destiny? Isn't that awesome? And I believe that the things that we decide to do in the moment really determines the outcome of what's going to happen in our future. And I believe God wants to invade our present. He wants to bring about transformation. And as we yield to him and we put our faith in him and start trusting him, things begin to change in our lives. And that's true no matter who you are. And you know, so many people say, well, pastor, it's just way too late for me. But I want to just encourage you, it's never too late. And I want to share a story from the Bible on the very day Jesus was being crucified. It says that there were two thieves being crucified with him. And it's so interesting to me because in Matthew's gospel, we read in chapter 27 in verse 44 that in the same way, these two robbers or thieves who were crucified with them were heaping insults on Jesus. But I want you to know how dynamic Jesus is as a person. Not only did he live an amazing life, did incredible miracles, but he died in such an amazing way. First of all, he died for a purpose. He died for you and for me. He died for the sin of the world. But I want you to notice he died with such dignity. And rather than, you know, rail, and when, even though people were, you know, heaping insults and railing on him, you know what the words out of his mouth were? Father, 
forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And in that moment, something happened to one of the thieves on the cross. Now, Matthew doesn't pick that up. You know, they're all telling the story from a different angle, but Luke zeroes in on that. And he says this in Luke chapter 23 and verse 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. And he said, aren't you the Messiah or the Christ, the Savior? You know, save yourselves, save us. But the other criminal rebuked him. All of a sudden, he had a change of heart. And he said, don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? He said, we're justly punished, but we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. How many think that's an amazing thing that in the final moment of his life, this man acknowledged that he was in the wrong. He, you know, a lot of people understand that. They are struggling with, I know I've done wrong. I know that there's things in my life I'd like to reset. I'd like to change some of the things I've done in the past. But I want to declare to you today that God wants to bring about a transformation of that situation. And so he said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I love how Jesus responded to him. He says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, Jesus said, I have forgiven you. You are going to receive what I have in store for people who fear me, know me, love me, serve me. And right at the very end of this man's life, he entered into the presence of God. I mean, that's amazing. Isn't it great that God could address all of his past life in one moment? just by one action, and that's why Jesus came to die. So I want to take a look at this whole issue of how our future can be transformed, how we can change our destiny. And I think the critical question is, you know, we ask the question, how can change happen? Well, I think the critical issue is, you know, what we do with Jesus. What do we do with Jesus? That's the question we're going to raise. And the Bible tells us today about a religious leader who comes to Jesus by night in order to talk with him. And in this meeting, I believe there are three elements that literally will bring about eternal change in our lives. And it's an example of how God works in our lives today. And the first one is the interest of a searching heart. Now, how many know that, you know, all of us are searching for something? We're trying to understand what life's about. We're trying to understand meaning. We're trying to get a sense of purpose. You know, why are we here? Why did God, you know, create me? Or why did I, you know, why am I on this planet? A lot of questions flood our minds. And I I think that God also creates curiosity. He spurs us onto a, a little bit of a search. And sometimes it comes because we see the transformation in another person's life. I love that testimony, Heather, when you're saying, I saw change in my friend's life and I knew I wanted the same. And isn't it amazing that God can use that to stimulate us to make a decision to become a follower of Christ? And how many also recognize that sometimes it's not so much you know, knowing a bunch of people, but maybe life isn't working for us. There's a sense of brokenness or a sense of uh, disconnect with life or a sense of loss or we're, we're struggling and we can't seem to find our way out of it. And one of the things that happens in life is we come to the end of ourselves. And how difficult is it to lose that sense of self-sufficiency? And I believe why so many people are frustrated and angry right now at the moment is they're losing that sense of self-sufficiency. They feel like they're losing control. And you know what? People feel that way. They don't know how to respond. They just get upset. They get angry. They just, you know, lash out. And yet God is bringing this culture to the end of themselves 
so that you and I will begin to realize we need to look up. I think we've looked to humanity for so long. We think that, you know, technology and science and somebody out there has got the answer. But can I declare to you that God is the one who has the ultimate answer. We need to look up. We need to look to him in this time. And so here uh, in John chapter 3, we find this man by the name of Nicodemus. And he's a member of a religious sect. This religious sect is actually... uh, well-known to many of us in the New Testament. They're called Pharisees. Now, I know when you read the New Testament, the Pharisees get a bad rap. Isn't that true? Because it seems like they're the opponents of Jesus as a group. But I'm going to just say this, that the Pharisees were actually separatists. They actually believed in following God and being true to his word. But so many of them, it became strictly external. It wasn't internalized. And when that happens, all of a sudden, we become very critical and harsh and judgmental of other people. We have to be careful of that. And even as Christians, I find that that can happen to us. We can fall into that category. So here's what we need to know. This, this Pharisee was actually a sincere person. I believe that Nicodemus, we're going to see him one day in heaven because he was a man that was a searcher. He, was, he came to Jesus, it says here in John's gospel, chapter 3 and verse 1. He said, now there was a Pharisee a man named Nicodemus who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he was a man of influence. He was a leader. He was a man who was in the Jewish parliament. And he had been watching what Jesus was doing. And he said this to Jesus. He came to him at night, probably because he didn't want people knowing uh, that he was you know, talking to Jesus. He didn't want to, you know, that would have created you know, something for the gossip magazines, right? He'd, paparazzi would have been there taking pictures, you know. Who's Nicodemus hanging with, that kind of stuff. So he comes to Jesus at night and he says, for no one can perform the miracles you are doing if God were not with him. In other words, I recognize you have to be God sent. I recognize that these miracles are validating. They're actually markers or signs pointing us to God. And how many can understand that Jesus was doing things that nobody else had ever done? Do you know it's pretty hard to walk on water in the summertime? You know, I had to clarify that because Albertans go, oh yeah, it's winter, right? We can walk on water. But no, Jesus was walking on the waves. Isn't that an amazing thing? And actually, it's a fulfillment of what the psalmist says, God treads the waves. And so Jesus is revealing that he's more than just a human being. And some of the things that Jesus did, I mean, raising people from the dead, how many think that's pretty impressive? Anybody be impressed by that? I, I, I'm pretty impressed by that. You know, people that hadn't been able to hear, maybe even born with a, with a defect, an inability to hear. Jesus was healing people so that the deaf could hear, the blind could see, the lame could walk. It was amazing. And I mean, people were gathering. No wonder there was thousands of people coming to see Jesus. You know, he didn't need any marketer or promoting agent. I mean, it was happening. They were seeing the reality of God at work in their midst. And these miracles now were pointing people to God. And so Nicodemus shows up. And the second thing I notice is that the insightful response by Jesus in this encounter. So I ask the question, how does faith come to people? How does faith come to you and me? You know, many people have said to me, you know, I'm, you know it's, I envy you because you have faith in God. I struggle with that. And I've had people say that to me. I struggle with faith. But can I tell you in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17, it says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we need to hear the word of God. And Paul writing to the Romans says this, how then can they call on the one whom they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? Isn't that interesting? 
Now, I know a lot of people have been critical of preaching. As a matter of fact, the scriptures say it's through the foolishness of preaching that God has used as a vehicle to confound wise people. And isn't it amazing that sometimes God just channels his message, he takes his message and moves it through a human personality. And that's true of all of us as believers. You know when you're speaking God's word, God is actually speaking through human personality. He's, he's actually, it's becoming the word of God becoming flesh. Just like it, the word of God became flesh, Jesus is the word of God. He became flesh, that's what Christmas is all about. But when you and I speak the word of God, that's what's happening. We're actually... Uh, incarnating, we're, we're in, in a sense allowing the Word of God to become a flesh through our lives. And that's, we start messaging through the way we live and the way we speak. And all of a sudden, people start hearing and actually are responding to what God is doing. And faith begins to well up within people's hearts. So Jesus now is going to challenge Nicodemus with truth. And he didn't wait for Nicodemus to even ask the question, you know, so often in this life, what do we tend to focus on? The natural, the material, the temporal, and the present. Isn't that true? And yet God is concerned about those things, but he's more concerned about the spiritual, the permanent, and the eternal. And so that's what Jesus does. He immediately moves Nicodemus in that direction. So I know this past week, it was interesting, I was reading a book about Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was probably one of the great preachers in the 20th century. He was pastoring in London for many, many years. He pastored before that in Wales. He was a Welshman. And, uh, many, and I, was, I didn't realize some of the things about his life, so I was reading kind of a synopsis of his life. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was actually a medical doctor. He had trained to be a medical doctor. He was becoming one of the most eminent young doctors. He was studying. He was a protege of the most famous doctor in London in the 1920s. So when this young man who had gone to church but had never experienced God in a personal way, never met Christ in a personal way, had that encounter with Christ and was transformed, while he was involved in his medical practice, all of a sudden he had this great sense that God was directing him to become a preacher of the gospel. And you can imagine the shock in the you know, all of the elite circles in London when he moved from being a, a medical doctor, a prestigious person in society, to becoming a preacher of the gospel and going and becoming a pastor of a very obscure church in Wales. And so the skeptics and critics were asking him about that, and he said, if you knew more about the work of a doctor, you would understand. We spend most of our time rendering or helping people fit to go back to their sin. And I saw I was helping these men to sin, and I decided I could do it no more. I wanted to heal their souls. Isn't that amazing? He says, if a man has a diseased body and his soul is right, he's right all the way to the end. He'll go right into eternity. He'll be fine. But if you have a healthy body and a diseased soul, you may be well off for 60 or so years, but then you have to face an eternity separated from God. So Jesus now is going to speak to the very core issue, the deepest concern in Nicodemus's life. <clears throat> Jesus said to him, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Immediately, Nicodemus asked the question, how can someone be born when they're old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Biblical scholar Neil Tenney says, Merrill Tenney says this, Jesus bluntly answered his question before he could state it without a complete change 
comparable only to rebirth, the natural person could not enter the spiritual kingdom. Cannot implies our inability rather than denying us God's kingdom. I want to just stop here and say this. You know, to become a Christian is the greatest miracle that this life ever offers. It's even greater than raising someone from the dead because that person will die again. But when you and I have a spiritual rebirth, what happens is we end up living forever and ever and ever. We have eternal life. It's powerful. He goes on to say, in our natural state, we are unable to understand how we can have this kingdom. Just as a blind person cannot enjoy a sunset. God's mysteries are not the heritage of the learned, the moral, or the religious simply because of learning morality or religion. They are the inheritance of the spiritually transformed. And I would argue and say this, that what it takes is one of those moments where you have a, a revelation or a, I'll say an illumination. How many of you have ever had those moments when you're struggling to understand something? All of a sudden you had that aha moment. Oh, I get it. Anybody ever have an aha moment where you finally get it? You know, somebody's been explaining it to you or something, you know, whatever it is. And then you get that aha moment and go, oh, yes. You see, that's what we need with God. We need that aha moment. I get it. I understand it now. It's now completely clear to me. I have, the light bulb has come on. I now get it. So God wants to make himself real to us. It's not religion that gets us to heaven. And probably one of the greatest examples of this is a man by the name of John Wesley. John Wesley grew up in a pastor's home. As a matter of fact, he felt that he should be a pastor, and he went and studied at Oxford in London. And he went with his brother Charles, and there were some very serious-minded young men who became part of a group called the Holy Club. That was a derisive name that others were calling them. Oh, you guys think you're holy. And they would do things like, you know, caring for the poor and visiting prisoners. And they were doing all the things that the New Testament was saying to do. And yet, John Wesley was trying to please God, but he didn't know God personally. Eventually, he and his brother Charles sailed across the Atlantic in the 18th century. And there, you know, the Atlantic has some terrible storms. And while they were going across... Some of those great storms came along, and he was terrified for life. He thought he was going to die. He was in a state of terror. But then he noticed a small little group of Christians from Germany called Moravians, and they were totally at peace singing hymns to God. And he thought, they have something I don't have, and I want what they've got. So he ended up going to the state of Georgia, trying to bring the gospel to the you know, First Nations peoples in Georgia, and it was a dismal failure. He went back to England. He was totally discouraged, and he ended up going to visit Peter Mueller, who was the, uh, basically the leader of the small Moravian group. And, and so he told uh, John Wesley, Peter Mueller did, he said the key to uh, having this experience, he says, is as a minister, because Wesley was ordained in the Anglican church, he says, just preach that you have faith, have faith in Christ. And eventually, he says, if you keep preaching that, John, it'll come to you. You will eventually, it'll connect, and you'll have faith in Christ. So Wesley said, oh, that's interesting. And then one day while he was actually attending a meeting with the Moravians at Eldersgate, he said they were reading the preface, that's the opening part of a book, the introduction to the commentary that Martin Luther wrote 
Hundreds of years earlier on that, you can be saved only by trusting in God. And as he was reading that preface and on that remark, he said, suddenly it dawned on me. I I felt all of a sudden I was trusting Christ and him alone for my salvation. And at that moment, he said, the spirit of God came upon me. And from that time on, John Wesley took off and began preaching and had incredible response from people because the spirit of God was now living within him. Well, Many non-Jewish people uh, had become converts to Judaism, and Nicodemus was aware of that. And so he knew that it was, you know, the, the Jude- Judaism taught that the convert was like a newborn child. Such a person might fittingly be described as born from above or born anew. And on this occasion, Jesus had been talking of, you know, of conversion from paganism. Nicodemus would have understood him well enough. But it would appear that his words were intended to apply to Nicodemus himself. In other words, Nicodemus, if he had been told, well, listen, you know, these pagans have to become born again, he would have got it. They would have been translated or moved to Judaism. But Jesus wasn't doing that. He was saying, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Well, wait a minute. Listen, Jesus, I'm a Jew. I I followed the law. I'm a, a child of Abraham. But you see, a lot of times we have people that grow up in the church and they think they're Christians just because they're in the church. Listen, we all need to have our own experience with God. We all need to call on the name of the Lord for ourselves. We all need to have that moment in our life where we make a commitment to Christ, just like uh, John Wesley experienced it in his life. Nicodemus was a moral man. He was a good man. He was well acquainted with the law of God and knew much about God, but the problem was he didn't know him personally. You know, over the years, I've met people like this, beautiful people serving in churches. As a matter of fact, I have friends. They're now in heaven, Ralph and Ethel Falstad. I remember them. You know, they were so wonderful. He even served on a board in a church. And, uh, you know, they thought they were Christians, him and his wife, Ethel. And they were generous. They were kind. They were considerate. I would would classify them as moral sinners, kind of like Nicodemus. And all of a sudden, one day, their daughter, who was married to a young man, his name was Mike, he had gone off to Vietnam. He was, you know, he stepped on a landmine, but he survived it. He was crippled, he was injured, and out of that experience, Mike became a Christian. And so did Nancy, the, you know, Ralph and Ethel's daughter. And all of a sudden, they, they got so transformed by the power of God that Mike and Nancy spent an entire year traveling all over the United States to visit everybody he served with in Vietnam to tell them the good news about Jesus. Isn't that amazing? So then Mike and Nancy come home and they say to Ralph and Ethel, and Nancy's pretty bold, she says, Mom and Dad, you know, you're amazing people, but you're not a Christian. And she said, when she said that, it cut right to the heart. Because, you know, when you think you're a Christian and someone tells you you're not, you're going to be a little defensive, right? And they were just kind of stunned that she would say that, but they couldn't argue the fact that Mike and Nancy's lives were so different. And they could see that something was radically different in their life than it was in their own. And eventually they came to that place where they surrendered their life to Christ. And let me tell you something, when when, uh, Ralph and Ethel became followers of Christ, uh, it was powerful. As a matter of fact, I just wrote down, they realized that their commitment was to their church, not to Christ. And they really didn't know God the way Nancy and Mike did in a personal way. And when they did, 
They surrendered to Christ, and, in his, and then that power of God, they began to serve with such enthusiasm and understanding, and that's when I got to meet them. As brand, they were like brand new Christians. Here they are in their 60s, attending Bible college with you know, my, myself and you know, Patty. I wasn't married to her then. We're in our early 20s, right? And here they are you know, in school with us, and what a delightful couple they were. A new beginning to a couple who are now in their retirement years. When translator Des Oakridge, working in Papua New Guinea, was trying to interpret this text, a lot of translation work, you're trying to put the right word down so the people can understand the concept. So he didn't know how to translate the word born again in their language. So he asked one of the men, he said, what would be the best word to use so that would help people understand what does it mean to be born again? And this is what he said. He explained this custom. He says, sometimes a person goes wrong and will not listen to anybody. And we'll all get together in the village and place that person in the midst of us. And the elders will talk to them for a long time. And they'll say, you've gone wrong. All your thoughts and intentions and values are wrong. Now you have to become like a baby again and start to relearn everything right. And that was the answer Des was looking for. So when he translated it into their language, he says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he becomes like a baby again and relearns everything from God's word. Kind of like reset, right? And start all over again. So to be born again is to be transformed in our very nature. Theologians call it uh, the work of the Holy Spirit regenerating the human heart. It's a beautiful thought. He gives us a new heart. Do you know what really happens when you're regenerated? He changes your desires. That's the powerful thing about becoming a Christian. See, you'll say, well, I, yeah, but I don't really want that. Yeah, I know, but once you become a Christian, you'll want all the things God wants. And before you're a Christian, you don't want anything to do with it. And I can say that for myself. When I wasn't a Christian, I didn't want to go to church. I didn't want to read the Bible. The moment I gave my life to Christ, something changed. I came to church. I got excited. I loved preaching. I loved to hear what God had to say. God's Spirit was speaking into my life. I'd go home. I'd start reading the Bible. I would start reading a chapter, two chapters, three chapters, four, five, six, seven, eight. Pretty soon I was reading for hours on end. I was, going, I was devouring it. You know, it was so exciting because God had changed my heart. As a matter of fact, Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Regeneration is the change of our nature. And Peter describes it this way, God has given us divine power. He's given us everything we need to live a godly life. How many are thankful? It's not all dependent on you. That's why I could say in the first service when I was praying for one guy, I said, God began this work in you. He's going to finish this work in you. It's not dependent on you. It's dependent on the work of God inside of you. It says we, everything we need for a godly life. Through our knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and goodness, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the nature of God. You have God's nature inside of you. Woo! Is that a neat thought? God is living inside of you and you get his nature as well. And then it says, having escaped the corruption that is in the society today, and that corruption is caused by what? evil or wrong desires, 
right? Wrong desires. God was going to change your desires. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Let me move on to the third element, the supernatural aspect of conversion. Jesus was describing for Nicodemus the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of people transforming them. We call it conversion. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. That's the third person of God, the Godhead. It is a miracle it is super ordinary. How many would like to experience something that's super ordinary? It's beyond ordinary. It's super ordinary. I love that. Anybody up for super ordinary? I like that word, super ordinary, supernatural. It's beyond the natural. It's super. You know, it says here, it comes from God. Jesus said, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit, notice the capital, the Holy Spirit gives birth to our spirit. He makes it come alive. You should be not surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. F.F. Bruce was a New Testament scholar. He says this, neither is there any difference between being born anew or being born from above or being born of water and spirit. But being born of the Spirit actually echoes Old Testament language. And Nicodemus was familiar with this language. And so he was helping Nicodemus understand what he was talking about. If he thought it was impossible for one to acquire a new nature in later life, let him remember that God had promised to do this very thing for this na the nation of Israel. I will sprinkle clean water, Ezekiel says, upon you, and you shall be clean, and a new spirit I'm going to put inside of you. How many say this is amazing? God was telling the ancient Israelites, I'm going to put a new spirit in you. And what is that spirit? The new spirit was God's own spirit. I'm going to put my spirit within you. That's why Joel could say, in the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Yes! Isn't that great? And so God has poured out his spirit today, and he's poured out his spirit inside of us. Man, I love this. This is so awesome. God comes and lives inside of our lives. The promise to Israel through Ezekiel was amplified in the vision of a valley of dry bones when the prophet obeyed the divine command. He said, he said Ezekiel, prophesy to those bones, and they're going to come alive. And then he did. Boom. Look what happens. Prophesy to the breath or to the wind. That word ruha in Hebrew is the spirit. Prophesy. Son of man, and say to the spirit, thus saith the Lord God. See, breath and wind and spirit, ruha. Come from the four kinds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. And boom, they all came alive. Isn't that great? God wants to make things that are dead alive. The kingdom of God is a spiritual order which can be entered only by spiritual rebirth. So to be born again speaks of a brand new beginning. This concept wasn't foreign to Nicodemus. Jewish teachers had a saying, a convert who embraces Judaism is like a newborn child. It brings one into a brand new world, gives an individual a brand new identity, but as Jesus pointed out, not a physical birth. And I want to declare to you today that God wants to give you a new identity. You know, I've been sharing with our class, I've been teaching Wednesday nights, and I've been saying this in the book of Ephesians, it teaches it so beautifully. And Peter says it too. You know, a lot of us, we feel a little insecure and intimidated by, you know, influential or prominent people. True? Do we ever feel that way? A little insequential, you know, not very consequential, you know. But I want to tell you who you are. You are princess and princes of the Most High God. You're royalty. How many know royalty? They're kind of up there, right? You, you are 
sons and daughters of the Most High God. If you're a child of God, you're royalty. Yeah, I, sometimes we forget that. I just want to remind you. I think it's important to be reminded. So Jesus goes on to say, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born again. So what did Jesus mean? To be born of water speaks of repentance. It's a change of mind about our relationship with God. It's a change of attitude about God and all the things that God loves and the things that God doesn't love. Jesus was basically telling this religious person that religion won't get you into heaven. It takes a relationship with this person that he was talking to. His name is Jesus. And when Nicodemus asks, how can this come about? I want to close right now with the story. Jesus immediately tells a story that Nicodemus was familiar with. It's found in the Old Testament. The Israelites had been delivered from the bondage of Egypt. They were in captivity. It's a picture. You and I, before we know Christ, we're in bondage of sin. We're in captivity. And all of a sudden, we are delivered by the power of God. And they were going through the wilderness. And while they were going through the wilderness, the book of Numbers really tells us a lot about it. What did they tend to do in the book of Numbers while they were going through the wilderness? Well, they tend to do what most of us do when we're going through a hard time. What do we tend to do? Complain. complain. Yeah, complain. Grumble, complain. Grumble, complain. You know what? You and I, we, should, we shouldn't be full of grumblers and complainers. Why? Because we have God with us. Do you know that God provided for two and a half million people in the wilderness? He fed them every day. He watered them. He gave them everything they needed. They were still complaining. Don't you think we have that same issue today? So you know what God did? He said, I'm tired of listening to you guys whine and complain all the time. I, teach, I do such a good job of taking care of you. And he let these poisonous snakes start biting people. A few of them were dropping dead. You know, how many know that? That gets your attention. How many know COVID's gotten our attention? It's gotten our attention. So they went to Moses. They said, hey, Moses, you know, we've really messed up. We've been sinning against the most high God. What do we do? Moses went to God and said, hey, what should I do? He said, I want you to take uh, an object of brass. I want you to fashion it in the likeness of those poisonous snakes. I want you to put it on a pole. And when the people look up to that, I'll heal them and they'll live. Isn't that amazing? So they did that. And many of the people were healed and they started living. Now, Jesus uses that story to say, in the same way, when the Son of Man is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. And he wasn't talking about lifted up into heaven. He's talking about being crucified. And when you and I look to Christ, the crucified one, when we look to him in faith and say, Lord, I believe that you died for my sins. You see, a lot of the reason why Jewish people struggle sometimes at coming to faith with Jesus as a Messiah is because they see that he was crucified. And the Old Testament says, cursed is everyone who dies on a tree. And so he was accursed. And so they go, how can Jesus be the Messiah when he's cursed of God? And the apostle Paul, who's a Jew, says to them, it's real simple. Jesus became the accursed one, that he took on the sin of the entire world so that you and I could be free from sin. He exchanges our sin for his righteousness. Now, how many would like to come in God's uh, presence with your sin? Uh-uh. Nobody would want to do that because he's a holy God. But how many would like to say, I'd like to be, you know, have all of my sins taken away, and now I walk into God's presence as if I'm Jesus Christ with no sin. How many think that might be a good exchange? That's exactly what he's promising us. When you and I come to Christ, we exchange our sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. Isn't that a beautiful thing? And you and I come in as sons and daughters of God. 
And as you and I, by faith, look to this crucified one and say, Jesus, you died for my sin, and as far as the east is from the west, so far will you remove my sin from me. Is that a beautiful thing? And so I'm going to have a stand right now as we close. And just to say this to us, you say, well, why in the world would God do this? Why would God be this gracious to us, this loving to us? And the Bible uh, basically leaves us with this beautiful verse at the end of the story. It says, for God so loved. You know, we could say, yes, God is loving. That's why he's motivated to do this. But when he did this act, he didn't negate his justice. And a lot of people don't understand. God doesn't just forgive without addressing the problem of evil. He addresses the problem of evil by taking it on himself and dying for our evil. That's what he did. And now he can show us mercy and forgiveness and love. So God so loved the world, it says, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have what kind of life? Everlasting, eternal life. You know when that life begins? Not when you die. It begins the moment you surrender your life to Christ. New life comes into you. New power comes into you. New desires come into your life. And I'm going to just have you bow your heads for a moment. Just close your eyes. I'm not here to embarrass anybody, but I'm going to ask the question. Maybe you're here today. Maybe someone invited you. I don't know why you're here, but I've, I've discovered something. It doesn't matter. Maybe you've been sitting in these church pews for years, and you finally realized as you were listening this morning, maybe I'm like that Ralph and Ethlin. Beautiful people, church-going people, but I've never had a personal relationship with Jesus. Maybe that's you today. Or maybe you're like that person that feels like, I've done so many bad things in life. I've come to the end. It's no use. There's no hope for me. There's no change for me. Can I just say that the man on the cross that was dying next to Jesus, by changing his mind, changed his eternal destiny. Or maybe you're like Nicodemus. You're a moral person. And you think you're a Christian. Or maybe you're like, you know, a person who's like the next chapter in John, the woman who had had five husbands and she was looking for love in all the wrong places and thirsty. You know, it doesn't matter where you're at right now, but something inside of you is saying, yes, this is what I want. I want to know God in a personal way. I want his spirit to come into my life. I want my sins to be forgiven. I want to be in a right relationship with him. And if that's you today, just raise your hand. Say, would you pray with me, Pastor? Just raise your hand straight up. I'm going to pray with you. Okay, wonderful. It's great. I'm seeing a lot of hands go up. Awesome. Okay, you can lower them now. Okay, here's what I'm going to say. We're all going to pray. We're not going to embarrass anybody. I don't think it hurts me as a Christian to ask Christ to come into my heart. I've done it many, many times. Uh, doesn't hurt me one iota. I love it. I love surrendering to Christ. So I'm going to have you as a church family. We're going to pray this prayer together. It's going to help these individuals who've raised their hands to pray with us. And I believe as they're praying with sincere hearts, Spirit of God's going to come inside. So just pray out loud with me. Just copy my prayer. Our uh, dear Father in heaven, I thank you for loving me. I thank you for dying for me in the person of Christ. I ask you to forgive me and cleanse me from all my sins. I receive you into my life as my Savior and my Lord. I thank you for hearing my cry 
and saving my soul. I receive the life of the Spirit and the forgiveness of my sins. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.